Well, have you ever watched the same movie over and over and over again? Do you know that's actually known as a, a sign of intelligence? It, it may, people will say they pick out different things from a movie uh, each time they watch it. And uh, Pam has caught me watching many movies over and over again, not exactly her genre. And one of them that she's caught me many times, she's like, how many times are you going to watch this movie? And I'm like, I love it. And it's the 2008 Batman movie, The Dark Knight. Of, of all the Batman movies, it is my favorite. And the Joker is played by Heath Ledger, who actually won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor that year. In that, and he was a great actor who died at a very young age. And there's one scene in the movie, spoiler alert, you might want to put your earplugs in, but spoiler alert uh, on an 11-year-old movie, but <laughs> where there's this big pile of money, and they pour gasoline all over it. He's talking to one of the criminals there, and he takes a, a cigar or a cigarette, and he throws it on top, and all the money goes up in flames. And, and the guy's like, what are you doing? And then he has this great, great line that I love. He says, all you care about is money. This city deserves a better class of criminal, and I'm going to give it to them. <laughs> and, and over the years before Jesus came to earth, while he was here, and even still today, there have been many, many bad leaders in the church. There have been many bad leaders in all realm of society. And what a lot of people don't know is one of the ways that God judges a group of people or even nations is by bad leadership. Now, I don't want to compare uh, Jesus to the Joker, although we will be talking about some other Jokers today in the, in the message. But Jesus knows that the church deserves a better class of leader. And while that won't be totally fixed until Jesus Christ returns, we do have Jesus teaching on the subject. Now, it's not an easy subject to teach, so I'm a church leader, so I look at all these different areas where I might fall short, or maybe you're a leader in your business or in your home or in some other realm of life. And so he's going to bring uh, our attention to a lot of areas where we fall short, so it's not particularly easy. Uh, typical of Jesus' teaching, he first exposes what's wrong and then he gives us heaven's way. And for those of you who are you know, more in-depth Bible students, that's called the law of end stress. And so what happens is he teaches what's wrong, and at the end he stresses what is correct in a way that all of us can get the point, understand it, and hopefully make adjustments in our life. And so the title of our message today is A New Kind of Leadership. So let's set the scene uh, most scholars believe we're still in Tuesday of Passover week. Jesus is in Jerusalem. People have come from all over Israel, all over the world, actually, uh, for Passover week. And he's in the temple, and there's lots of people in the temple. So the whole town is bustling. Everything is packed. And the religious leaders have been, in the previous uh, chapters, the previous weeks we've been studying, they've been testing Jesus with questions. Now, we have to be fair to them at a few points today, not too many of them, but to be fair, it was their job to cross-examine all people who would claim to be uh, messiahs, but Jesus' popularity was really disturbing to them because as the more Jesus became popular, the less popular they became. Also, Jesus' teaching really disturbed them uh, quite a bit as, as they didn't really like some of the things that Jesus had to say. Now you say, well, what would he say that they wouldn't like so much? Well, Jesus uh, opposed the religious leaders' oral laws. And what were the oral laws? They were the additions that they made to the Word of God, what we know as the Old Testament. That was the Bible that Jesus had at the time. And what they did was they put unnecessary burdens or religious burdens 
upon people. Now, we have to stop for one second and analyze how they would really think. Uh, Some people believe, and I would say the Bible is clear that they believe wrongfully so, that you are saved by works, by you are saved by the things that you do. The scriptures never teach that. Jesus didn't teach that. The apostles didn't teach that. We are saved by grace through faith and putting our trust in Jesus Christ. And, and so that, that was not something that people taught and a lot that the, Jesus and the apostles taught. A lot of people thought that's what the Jews believed, but that's not really what they believed. They re- believed something that's known as conventional or covenantal, excuse me, covenantal nomism. And what that really means is they believed that they were born into the family of God automatically, that they were children of Abraham, and then that they would carry out the right for the young men of circumcision. And then they kept themselves in the family of God. They kept themselves, if you will, by being staved or inside the covenant through their works. Now, you might sit there and go, well, that, that, that doesn't sound really right. But there's a lot of people who would call themselves Christians who do the same thing. They, you know, they, they grew up in a system where if you do good works, you're going to become saved, and you begin to think, how could, this, how could this really get my sins forgiven? And then you hear the good news of the gospel, that you put your trust in Jesus Christ, and then you will be saved, your sins will be forgiven, you'll go to heaven, and people are like, oh, I'm so excited, I'm so excited. And then they spend their life trying to live it out, and they're thinking that it all depends upon them. So they're saved by grace, but maintained by works. And so you say, oh, I would never think that. But a lot of people do. I'll say to people, so are you a Christian? They're like, I'm trying. What do you mean you're trying? You either are or you're not. You know, it's like you don't go in your garage and go to your car. Are you a car? You're either a car or you're not. And so, and so we have to remember that a lot of people really think that, although they don't necessarily uh, think that they think that. But as Jesus is undoing that in terms of his preaching to the crowds, By now, it has become crystal clear that the religious leaders will not be calling people to put their trust in Jesus. They will not be recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. They will not be calling people to trust him in order to get to the kingdom of heaven. And and the gospel was not important to them, but maintaining this level of works that they were doing to maintain what they thought was their salvation was important. Uh, Back in chapter 22... Uh, we, we read this, a religious leader came to Jesus, verses 36 through 40, and he said, Teacher, which is the great, com- great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord God with all your heart. Remember when we talked about that, we put the emphasis on the word all. It's all, you're, we're all in. If you're gonna, Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be one of my people, you're going to be all in. So you love the Lord God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. And then he said, the first and and great, that is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And Jesus is about to teach the crowds that the religious leaders are weak on both fronts. They are weak on loving God and they are weak on loving people. They think they're all in, but they're not even in at all. The religious leaders' system of rules and regulations, and again, let's try to give them the benefit of the doubt, maybe some were well-intentioned, became an end in, in and of themselves, and the grace of God gave way to the works of man. Now, we might sit there and go, oh, well, you know, everybody has their opinion, whatever. That's not the way Jesus does it. Jesus doesn't operate that way at all. Jesus won't stand by and not say anything. Jesus will not let people dishonor God, and nor will he let people misrepresent God and his law and his word 
by professing their own personal holiness. And that's what a lot of these religious leaders were doing. Now, the the scripture tells us that we are to pray for our leaders. And so I think you would include, say that would include, that we should respect our leaders, but all leaders, and you'd be surprised. A lot of you would tell me, well, I'm not a leader. Give me three minutes, and I'm going to show you how you probably are. You're prob- there are people probably looking at you, looking at you, fo- how you follow God and what you do and the influence you have on people. If you're a parent, you're a leader. If you're in, in a job place, if you're a boss, you're a leader. Or even just among your coworkers, you're a leader. At, you know, church leaders and stuff like that. And all, all leaders should see that we have the potential to mislead people. And by Jesus' day, the religious leaders had taken an authority for themselves that had gone beyond the word of God, and the result was that they were leading people astray. And as chapter 22 ended, after they had talked with Jesus over and over again, the religious leaders uh, were not going to ask Jesus any more questions. They had just decided that that's it. Every time we ask him a question, we go home with our tail between our legs. We're not going to listen anymore. And Matthew 23 then brings us into this section where it says, verse 1, then we might say, well, what came next was Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples. And so what we have here is we have the last public um, sermon of Jesus. This is the last time he's going to talk to people in public. It's very interesting. What would you do if it was your last public sermon? You think, well, you know, be nice to people and be kind and be love and be generous and stuff like that. And he's going to be talking about this week and next week about bad leadership. And it's, these are the kinds of words that got him killed. I mean, just imagine if some of the religious leaders are sitting there listening still. With the stuff that he's going to say is going to get him killed. And he's saying... The scribes and the Pharisees, we're going to often refer to them as the religious leaders, sit in Moses' seat. So Jesus turns from the religious leaders to his disciples and and to the crowds. And who are the crowds? The crowds are, let's say, the people who like to listen to Jesus. They like to have Jesus help him. They like that, you know, you go, go with Jesus, you get a free meal. He heals people. It's all great. But you wouldn't call them true followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, verse 2 tells them something that they all knew about the scribes, and the scribes would be the experts in the law, and the Pharisees, the, the word Pharisee means separated ones, and so these guys who were separated, and so not all of the, most of the scribes were Pharisees, but not all the Pharisees were scribes, so you have particularly well-educated ones, and it says that they sit in Moses' seat. Now, what does that mean? Some Bible scholars, in fact, most would think that in in a synagogue, you had the temple in Jerusalem, and then each town, for the most part, had their own synagogue. That's where they would go worship on the Sabbath, had up on the stage or in the front of the room where they would worship this seat that would be there, that they would call the seat of Moses, and they would just sit there, and they could be seen uh, by the crowds, and they would be seen by the people as the people watch them, and they like to be seen by people. I would never sit up front here. I don't want you all looking at me during the whole service. That's really weird to me. But, but at any rate, and, and, but at the very least, it means that there were, they were there, in the, sitting in the seat of Moses, that they were teaching the law of Moses, or, as Jesus might say, their version of the law of Moses, because there was a lot of revisionism that was going on to kind of fit the way that they were living their lives. Uh, The Jewish historian Josephus said 
Uh, at the time, you know, people were coming from all over to, uh, to Israel, but at the time, there's about uh, a million people living in Israel, but there was only about 6,000 of these Pharisees. So these Pharisees were religious. They were a highly esteemed group, and Jesus is going to teach us why following the hypocrisy of these type of religious leaders is dangerous for your soul and for your eternal destiny. And the reason is, is they take the word of God, they add to it or they twist it or something like that. And when you take the word of God and you change it and you take the teeth out of it and you take the authority out of it, you also take the power out of it and the gospel is the power to save men and women's souls to get them forgiven, their sins forgiven and eternal life. Verse 3, I want to read it twice because I'm going to have to interrupt it. Verse 3, Jesus says, Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. So let's go a little slower. Therefore, because of they sit in the seat of Moses, whatever they tell you, observe, that observe and do. Now, here's another debate among Bible scholars. Some people wonder, is Jesus using what we sometimes call about him his sanctified sarcasm? And a lot of people don't think Jesus is sarcastic. I would say that you don't read the Bible carefully enough. The, that's why sometimes people say, do you take the Bible literally? And I say, well, literal intent. You've got to really work very, very carefully to understand what Jesus is talking about. You have to study the text very, very hard. I also think Jesus was very funny. Some people think, you know, watch the movies about Jesus, and he's walking around like a robot, like, mm. and, and yet kids liked him. How many kids do you know just like robots and people who are just like, mm. they, they don't like that? And, and God made us, actually, I believe this with all of my heart, that God made us with a sense of humor. And you say, can you prove that? Well, I can. I have a little grandson, and he's 14, 15 months old, and I can't believe at that young age how he gets a joke. And, and, and how we can make jokes and how he can take a joke and make it further. And he laughs at all kinds of stuff. Like we play this game where I'm a monster and he just blows at me. He goes, and I go, ah! And then he chases me around and stuff like that. And so I think that God made us with that. And so Jesus would sometimes look at the religious leaders. And so maybe he's uh, making fun of, of them and, and, and just really trying to get them to uh, not only not get them, he's not trying to get them angry, but get them to take notice or maybe Jesus is simply saying, if Moses said it, do it. But the next statement is crystal clear. But do not do according to their works. Now, why would Jesus say that? For they, do, for they say and they do not do. Another version says this. They do not practice what they preach. We would simply say this. They lack integrity. They lack integrity. They say one thing. And they do another thing. And now, we all say one thing and do another to one extent or another. But here's the thing. They say one thing, and they do another thing, and they don't even care. It doesn't even bother them. As long as they keep their prestige and their place above the people, they are, they are very happy with that. Verse 4, for they bind, remember that word, bind heavy burdens. That would be these extra rules that they did, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. So they lay these heavy burdens on people. Oh, you have to do this, and you have to do this, and you have to do this, but they won't help the people at all. 
They, they won't help the people at all. Why? Because it seems that when you hear Jesus talk about them, it seems like they don't even care about the people. So we might say what? They lack sympathy. They don't care about people who are struggling to, to follow God. And so Jesus appears to be saying here, listen, when they teach Moses accurately, when they teach the Bible accurately, listen and obey. But when they add extra rules, be very very, very careful. Also, when their lives don't match up with their teaching of the word of God, follow the word of God, don't follow them. And I don't think I need to tell you that all the church scandals throughout history tell the story of these kinds of people. Phony religious leaders telling people to live a certain life even above the law of God while these Jokers, you know I'd come back to Batman. While these jokers are living life below it, and they don't even care. Now, this may surprise you, but if you would like to think of yourself or call yourself a follower of Jesus or a Christian, the scripture assumes that that people who love God study the word of God. I have a wife, and would you say, if I never spent any time with her, would you say that I could really say that I love her? No, you spend time with the people that you love. You make time for that stuff. And so the scripture assumes that we would spend time with God. And as we study the word of God, that there's going to be times when we don't know what's going on. And so we would ask questions. And then when we do start to understand things, we would exercise good judgment. We would think about what God is saying. And then we would do the things that God tells us to do. And that's what Jesus is saying here. That's why a lot of times with people who are new to the faith, we simply tell them this. They go, um, I don't really understand everything. We said, don't worry about what you don't understand. Worry about what you do understand. And, and read your Bible and do what it says. And so verse 4 tells us what they were doing. Interesting, Jesus said that my burden is light, but here we're told that they're laying heavy religious burdens on the people. Now, there's tons of problems with this, but one of the big problems with these burdens are is they bury the principles of the word of God that's what a lot of the things in God's word are to, to reveal principles to us and often the, make the religious leaders look good. And that's a, that's a temptation that every religious leader is going to have to fall into. Uh, years ago, Pam and I went to a church and, and the, before I was in the ministry and the pastor used to get up there and say, well, I'm studying my Bible 20, years, 20 hours a week, are you? And we, I, see, I'm just so rebellious. I wanted to raise my hand. She's like slapping my hand. Don't raise your hand. I wanted to raise my hand and go, isn't that what we pay you to do? Like you're, you're paid to study the Bible 20 hours a week. The rest of us actually have to go to work so we can pay you to study the Bible 20 hours a week. And, and, so, and so sometimes they, they, people do that, and that is what we call, and we all have to be very careful of this because we can all fall into this. That's what we call a comparative obedience, We look at our own lives, and we look at people who are worse than us, and we go, I'm not as bad as them. So somebody says, well, I'm a good person. I never killed anybody. Like, I'm not as bad as Hitler. And I'm like, that's really setting the bar high. I mean, that's really, like, I'm so impressed. You're so holy, man. So, but we can't can't live in that way because when we do comparative obedience, we are to compare ourselves to who? We are to compare ourselves to God. We are to compare ourselves to to Jesus himself. Even today, and this is so sad, how many people are afraid to leave religious systems to follow Jesus 
because of the guilt that has been ingrained in them. It happens here a lot. People would go, oh, I loved it here today. It was the greatest thing I heard God talk to me. It was wonderful. I go, great, come back next week. I can because I go here or I go there. I do that. I'm like, okay, that's life. Live, in it. Live it up, right? But, but it's so sad, really, when people feel that level of guilt. The scripture, as we said, teaches that we are saved by grace. We are forgiven of our sins by grace. It is a gift of God. The apostle Paul wrote this through faith. We put our faith and trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What happens, what's going on then, is those things are lost in favor of performing duties and rituals, none of which the scriptures teach can actually save you and get you the forgiveness of sins. Not to mention, when you and I, anybody, focuses on duty and ritual, what do we take our focus off of? We lose our focus on Jesus, on the Savior who died on the cross in our place for our sins, who died on the cross instead of us being punished for our own sins. So what's the lesson? We're called to live out the word of God as best as we can with God's help. And and 1 Timothy 4.12 says we are to be examples, and we try to live it out as best as we can. Now for leaders... Very important. If you're a leader in any stretch of the imagination, again, I think it's most of us here that, that for, for leaders, we do not try to control people with burdensome, legalistic expectations. What do I mean by legalistic expectations? I know I've been saying for years I'm going to do a message on legalism. I'll probably have to do it one of these years. And so, so, but what is that? That's like telling someone, if you don't do this, you're not going to go to heaven. If you don't do this right or this ritual that you're going to go to heaven, um, that is completely unloving to God and unloving to people. Now, we have to put an asterisk on that because people are running around all the time. you got one crowd. You have to do this. You have the other side of the accord. Oh, no, we're all saved by grace. That does not mean that you don't have reasonable house rules. Did we hear that, mom and dad? Because you're going to have a house rule. And your kid's going to go, I'm not going to do that. No. And you're going to go, why? And they're going to go, it's not in the Bible. <laughs> right? Take the trash out. That's not in the Bible. <laughs> okay, you're right. It's not. Obey your parents is, but, but, but that's it. So, th- so are, there are reasonable house rules that you have at home and at work and at church. Stuff like curfews, arrival times, duties. Now, I know in this age with, with technology, a lot of you... You work remotely or you work from home or something like that, so your time is a little bit more flexible. But let's say you work at a store and it opens up at 9 o'clock. Is arriving an hour after the store opens, if you're opening the store, acceptable? No, that's not acceptable at all. You serve in the children's ministry, and you think, oh, we like to arrive 15 minutes after the kids. Oh, great. Oh, great. Right? You know, they're climbing on top of the walls. They're killing each other. The boys have found everything in the room to turn into a weapon, and they have swords and stuff like that. And so, of course, there's going to be house rules, but your salvation does not depend upon following the house rules. Uh, but it does mean that we try not to be hypocrites. We try not to say one thing and do another. We own up to it when we do it, but we, don't, we do care about it, as it says in verse 3, or we don't want to be indifferent to the burdens that other people have to carry. 
verse 5. I want to read this one two times again. He says, but, their, but all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. So let's go slowly. But all. Remember, in the, we just read earlier that Jesus said, you need to be all in. Your heart, your soul, and your mind. All in. He tells us how they're all in, these religious leaders. They're all in, but all their works they do, look at this, to be seen by men. That's how they're all in. They're not all in for God and people. They're all in for who? They're all in for themselves. And he gives us two examples. They make their phylacteries. Now you say, what in the world is a phylactery? Like, that's where I go to work in the morning. I go to the phylactery. Um, those are prayer boxes that, that would contain Bible verses in them and that there was scripture that they wore on their left arm so it would be close to their heart and on their forehead. And it says they make their phylacteries broad. So what did they do? They kept making them bigger and bigger and bigger. Instead of a little box, we're just kind of, would do it. They would make them bigger and bigger and bigger. And enlarge, he says, the borders of their garments. So they would have these prayer shawls that they would wear or these robes. And, they, and he's just saying that they make the, they make the fringes uh, larger and uh, of the prayer shawls that they would have too. And Jesus wore one, but he wore one of a normal size. So Moses taught the people to bind in the, in the Earlier on, Moses taught the people to bind, there's that word again, again, the word of God on their hand and their forehead. That's in Deuteronomy 6. And so, so what they did was they took it literal. And they said, you're going to take the word of God. Obviously, they couldn't fit the whole Old Testament. They'd take select verses, and they would tie them to their head, and they would tie them to their arms so it would come down uh, to their hands, but their hand and their forehead. But I personally think it was metaphorical. I'm not against those things per se until they lose their value. And so, they, again, they took it literal. And why would God do that? Well, your mind is all that you think. It would be on your, on your, on your arm. It would be close to your heart, loving God with all of your heart. And your hand is what? You do what you do with your hands. And so God is saying, I want the word of God to be bound to you. I want you to be bound to it. So everything that you say, do, think, your life is based upon the word of the Lord. And the tassel on the garments was a simple reminder uh, that they were God's people. And that's how you could tell a Jew in many different types of, of, of ways, uh, but environments. And it was a simple reminder to obey God's law and to be holy. But to be noticed, what these guys was, is they made theirs bigger and bigger and bigger. For many, um, what, what happens? Well, for, for a lot of people, they recognize a symbol and what it's there for. And, and a lot of other people, these symbols become more like a rabbit's foot. And it becomes kind of superstitious. And what happens when you become superstitious? What happens to your faith? It starts to tank, right? I remember when I was a little kid, whenever I would lose something, my mother would always say, you have to pray to St. Anthony. So we'd lose something. She'd say, let's pray to St. Anthony. We have to pray to St. Anthony. So I, the parish I went to was called St. Philip's, and the one at the next place was St. Anthony's. So one night on Christmas Eve, we went there on midnight mass, and so we pull up to St. Anthony's, and there's people everywhere. I'm going, man, these people lost a lot of stuff, right? <laughs> because it, it had become for me just this, this superstitious thing. And, it, and, it, and, and so it didn't really have any meaning. And Jesus sees instead of doing things in love of and service to God and people, 
that some of these guys are doing things to be seen by people and for reputation. And we all need to be careful of this. It's, all, it's easy for all of us to, to do the wrong thing, to do good things with the wrong motivations. And, and Jesus says that's what they're doing with all that they do. All that they do is polluted by their own pride. Now, some of you right now have these pictures going through your heads. I, I can see them. Did you know that, pastors? I can see what you're thinking. Yeah, I can. This section over here, not good. Not good. You people over here don't get big heads. Just about as bad, right? So you can see what people are thinking. And I know some of you with your background, as similar to my background, or maybe a friend of yours has a background, or you went to a service, you start, you're already in your heart condemning what we call the high church guys. Uh, if, if you want to know what high church is, um, we are Calvary Chapel. We are low church. In fact, we are below sea level church, right? So high church is very ornate, uh, all kinds of different stuff. And so you're thinking about the robed religious leaders uh, of our day. You're thinking about the guys with the big hats, and, and they're carrying the staffs, and they have the long robes and the beads. But, but what, about the, what about the low church hit pastors strutting around the stage in $2,000 sneakers. Is that really any better? Is that really any better? It's the same thing. It's drawing attention to yourself. Now, you've got to ask yourself, um, is, is, is God against the clothing? Is he against the clothing? No, no. I don't know, maybe skinny jeans. What do you think about that? How many of you think God's against skinny jeans? Would Jesus have been caught dead in a pair of skinny jeans? Now, some of you skinny jeans guys are like, oh, no, we can wear them, and you can't, Pastor Jim. You're just jealous. That could be. <laughs> that could very well be. <laughs> but, but so, no, no, he's not, against the, he's not against the clothing. But he is against when the focus is taken off Jesus. He's against when the focus is put on the man or the woman and not on Jesus himself. And the, and the scriptures are clear as day on this. Uh, 700 years before Jesus lived, Isaiah 42, 8, Isaiah writes this, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. That, I mean, they're like, there's no, no wondering what he's trying to say there. It's clear as day. I, uh, my glory I will not give to other, nor my praise to carved images. That, that's a serious statement that all of us need to be careful not to get wrong. Self-promotion, the desire to look good in the eyes of others at God's expense is a temptation for all of us. And we have to be careful. I think a lot of times it's born out of insecurity. Uh, Verse 6. Now, verse 6 takes us to an interesting thing. Uh, In Jesus' day, you know, in our culture, we admire really wealthy people. It's just something that we do. People become billionaires and all of a sudden, we think we're smart, and then they become president. We're like, I don't know about that theory. And so, um, but, but, uh, but, but we think really rich people are, are really, really smart. And, and in their day, religious respect and honor was like being a billionaire. And he says, verse 6, they loved the best seats at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues. Verse 7, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, rabbi, rabbi. So what is he saying? He's saying they totally lack humility. Jesus says, watch out for these guys, how they love to be seen as being important and respected. It's like a drug to them. They just cannot get enough of it. 
So they, so they go to a party, and they want the seat of honor. They go to a party, and someone says, oh, rabbi, rabbi, come to the seat of honor so everybody can see you. And they're like, well, if I must, if I must. And so they want to sit in front of everybody else. Uh, they want to sit on the stage in the synagogue and have everybody watching them. They want to be recognized at the mall. They want people walking up to them or being like, ooh, look, there goes a, there goes a man of God. They like titles like rabbi, rabbi. Now, that's a title that has a lot of different meanings associated with. One of the meanings is when you say rabbi, rabbi is my master, my teacher. My master, my teacher. Any Star Wars fans here? If you're a Star Wars fan, you know that's the, that's the entrance to the dark side. <laughs> Once you start calling somebody your master and your teacher, that you are on your way uh, to, the, to the dark side. And then what would happen would be uh, people would just start to blindly follow them. And even if they said stuff that contradicted with the word of the Lord, they would listen to them. Uh, Jesus is teaching, don't see, as, don't see men as more than they really are. As the old expression goes, the best of men are men at best. And that's all they really are. That's all any of us really are. Rabbi, rabbi, interesting, could also mean, this is, this is disgusting to me, it could also mean my Lord. Rabbi, instead of calling rabbi, say, oh, my Lord. I just want to divert myself for a few moments here. Uh, like every good husband, um, I watched every Downton Abbey episode with my wife. This is where all the ladies go, oh. I guess not. <laughs> well, one of the things I repeatedly asked Pam to do during Downton Abbey was to refer to me as my lordship. <laughs> and she refused. <laughs> I brought up a scripture I commonly bring up to her, and I said, well, you know, it says that Sarah called Abraham Lord in the Old Testament, to which she always replies, well, you're no Abraham, Jim. So that's, <laughs> that's just the way it goes. But men, uh, married men, a wife that lovingly humbles you is a treasure. Now, I know at the point of humbling, you want to make her buried treasure, but that's not what we want to be about. <laughs> and, 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 and she is a gift, a treasure from the Lord. Now, in Jesus' day, I'm, I'm still diverting here. Uh, in Jesus' day, it, it, for some, it meant that you obeyed your rabbi without question. And one of the things you could tell by a rabbi and a student was the, by the way they walked together. And so a lot of times you couldn't walk beside your rabbi or you couldn't walk in front of him. You had to kind of walk at a distance. Now, if you're new here, you actually might have noticed that that happens here. And I'm going to take a moment to explain to you why. Um, I contracted four years ago, but it really, can, it really kicked in three years ago, a very, very rare neurological startle disorder. Uh, only one out of... Uh, you know, 40,000 people get it. Most people actually stay in the house. I know wish some, of, some of you wish I would stay in the house. But, 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 but I have this thing, and uh, I just want you to know it's not a Calvary Chapel thing. So when you pe see people walking really far in front of me or really far in back of me, don't be like, oh, you know, he thinks he's so much better than the, than the rest of us. And um, so, so when, I'm, when I'm walking, if people walk right in front of my line of vision, 
I can actually get very, very dizzy at the moment. You'll see me, I'll start to grab and hold on. So if I'm walking near you and I put my Bible up so I don't see you, it's not like I'm horrified by you. <laughs> it's, it's because I don't want to have some dizzy spell and get up on the stage and be like, <laughs> so, so, so that happens. Also, um, when people talk to me now, it never happened before when, I wasn't, when I'm not looking at them eye to eye, I get startled, and the same thing happens. I start to, you know, kind of, what happens is my brain shuts down for a moment or two, and I always tell everybody what happens is my IQ is lowered by about 40 points, and some of you people are smart. I don't have no 40 points to give, <laughs> so, and so, so that happens too. I laugh about it, because if I didn't laugh about it, I'd be crying about it. This is really true. Some of you are like, is he really telling the truth? No, this is, this is really true. You can go to the uh, guest and information table after the service, and they'll tell you that, that it's really true. And then if you come up from behind me and grab me from behind, then I have a mini seizure. And, and so I sort of go Kramer on everybody. And, and then people are like, well, what's he doing? And some people are like, oh, he's in the spirit. And, and I'm like, he's not in the spirit. And that's why, really, um, I, 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 I used to say I don't wander around the stage because I want to stay tethered to the text. I want to stay close to the text. Now I'm just holding on for dear life. And so uh, God does whatever God has to do, and, and I understand that. All right, I've digressed enough, at least for the time being. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote about uh, the kind of leadership that, that, that Christ was envision, had envisioned in the church, in our homes, in our work, in our school, wherever we go, when the Apostle Paul wrote this, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Now, this is something as Americans we would never say. We just would never say that. But why, but why wouldn't you say that? Now, if you go around saying it to everybody, I agree that's a bit obnoxious. But if someone says to you, you know, I really noticed, you know, in that situation... Maybe it wasn't your fault, but you got blamed for something that wasn't your fault, but you kind of took it, and you didn't make a big deal about it. And I really saw Christ in you. And if you say, well, if that's true, if you saw that, then imitate that. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what we do as Christians. So when people notice it, then, then, then say, listen, that's just Christ in me, and, that, and Christ wants to do the same thing in you. And the opposite is true as well. When, when people don't imitate Christ, don't imitate them. Don't do it. Now, over the years, and again, this is tied into the leadership mistakes that the leaders are making in Israel at the time, I've made a lot of mistakes as a leader. I know it. And, and, so, and I've seen a lot as well. One of the biggest mistakes that I've seen in a lot of people is, and even in myself, is respect is earned, not demanded. We have to earn people's respect. We can't demand it. And many young and new leaders, because of ego and insecurity or both, try to act like they know what they're doing when they don't know what they're doing. Everybody knows they don't know what they're doing. They know they don't know what they're doing, but they're acting like they know what they're doing. Then instead of posturing themselves as learners and servants, they start to demand respect instead of working at earning people's respect. And here's the thing. This is really important. This is really important in marriage, really important. You, as a married couple, if you're married, and we should have this for all people, but really you see more of it in marriage, is that you should have respect for one another. Respect is a two-way street. For you to desire your spouse to respect you is not wrong. It's not wrong. Why? Because respecting someone is living a godly life. 
It's not wrong to want your spouse to live a godly life. It's not wrong to want your coworkers or people you're with to live a godly life. So desiring respect is not wrong, but demanding it is. You see, when you demand it, that's often how, how um, domestic abuse happens. People get angry when they're, when they're demanding something and, and it's not being given to them. And, and demanding, as a leader, demanding respect will not work. In fact, that's a great way to lose respect. And Jesus is teaching that the religious leaders who demand it, while it might look like they have it in the eyes of the community, they've never had it in heaven's eyes. And if they don't get their act together, they're never going to have it. So what's the answer? Verse 8, but you. You might want to circle those two words in your Bible. But you. Why? Because if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, something needs to be different about you. That's what he's saying to the crowd. He says, but you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ. Um, and, And so... That's the Messiah. Now, the religious leaders are going, he's talking about himself again. Here he goes again. So for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Now, Jesus could be taking their authority away. I'm not particularly sure. Verse 9, do not call on anyone on earth your father. For one is your father, he who is in heaven. Now, some of you are going, this is why I don't read the Bible. This is confusing stuff. I can't call my teacher, teacher. I can't call my father, father. Well, just to confuse you a little bit more, verse 10. And do not be called teachers, right? For one is your teacher, the Christ. So there needs to be some clarification culturally about some of the history about what's going on here. When they talked about being a father, they viewed God the Father as the giver of eternal life. And so he says, don't put that into any man or woman. Don't don't put that upon any person that they are a father. They are the giver of eternal life. And when someone was called a teacher, God was their teacher. The Christ was their teacher. The Messiah was their teacher. Teacher was associated with truth. And so don't, just because somebody says something, some of these guys were reinventing the truth. He says, don't do that. God himself is the teacher. And this is something that a lot of people get wrong. They go to some religious person thinking they're going to get eternal life from them. It is never going to happen. They go to another person, right, and they think, well, they think they're going to, they're going to teach me everything that I need to know about all truth. This is a lesson for any one of us, particularly guys like me, and it's, it's violated in pulpits all across America on a regular basis on Sunday mornings. I am to be... And you love me by calling me out on when I am not. I am to be a disseminator, a distributor of the truth. I am not the cook. I'm the waiter. God cooks the meal. I serve it. That is my role here at this church. And for all of us, we need to remember that. When we represent Jesus Christ, we are not the cooks. We're not making it up as we go along, as a lot of these TV preachers are doing. It sounds good. People love it, but it's a misrepresentation of Jesus Christ. Jesus has a real problem with phony religious leaders. However, I will add this. Jesus has a real problem with us giving them the position that belongs to God. We are not to give them that position in our lives. Nor does Jesus like the system where teachers are so esteemed and others take on an inferior role. That's why I think he tags on 
for we are all brethren. How often do we say we come to the foot of the cross and we stand there looking Jesus crucified and the ground is level. We are, none of us are better than the other. You think, well, we, that, you go into your comparative thing. Well, I'm not as bad as him. I'm not a bad. The comparison is the guy on the cross. It's not, it's not somebody else. And the, I don't know about you, but when I look at him on the cross and I look at me, the comparison is not too good. It's not too good for me. And it causes me to fall on my knees and worship him that he would die for me for that very reason. And the religious leaders have been unable to hold their own with Jesus and the scriptures. And it seems like Jesus is really telling the crowds, listen, you know the seed of Moses? It's actually the seed of Christ. It's actually my seed. And Jesus' words are very direct. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, we are most glad that you're here. But now he looks right as he looks his followers and, and the uncommitted people right in the eye. And he says to his followers, you have to hear them. You have to hear the words of Christ. And to the uncommitted people, he looks them in the eye and says, are you sure you're not following a false teacher? Are you sure you're following the right people? Now, some people say this is a Bible inconsistency. After all, there is a spiritual gift of teaching, and we sometimes do refer to spiritual fathers and sons and daughters and mothers in the faith. But remember, context is king. You determine the meaning of what's going on often from the context in which the Bible, the speaker is speaking. And Jesus is talking to religious leaders or about religious leaders who seek honor and loyalty that should only be given to the Lord himself. Now, some of you are saying, what about um, calling my dad father? Is that okay? Yes. In the sense of that he gave birth to you or he raised you or something like that or a spiritual father helped, helped raise you in the faith, but not in the same sense that God is our father. Now, I know dads are always a very touchy subject because I know a lot of you, I know a lot of you came from really, really wretched dads. I know I didn't treat you very well. But I think you need to listen to what I said. I'm going to say it again very carefully. What he's talking about here is that we are not to refer to our father in the same sense that God is our father. It's completely different. In two weeks, is Father's Day? I don't know. I don't have to remember. <laughs> My father's home with the Lord, and I'm the dad. <laughs> so, but, but, but a lot of you won't come to church on Father's Day. Because she'll say, for me, it's too hard a day. I don't even want to go out of my own house. Well, why don't you come to church for Heavenly Father's Day? Why don't you change the meaning of that day? You got a good dad, you honor your good dad, but you honor your Heavenly Father. You don't have a good dad, you can't honor your good dad. Your dad's no longer around. Make it your Heavenly Father's Day. That being said, we have to be very careful because in every age, people have put family ties above all else, and Jesus has regularly taught that is not following him so now you're all confused you're like i don't know what to call people like what do you call people i have a great suggestion here how about their name call people by their name 
Now, it's funny how it goes around the church around here. Now I have to digress for a little bit again. Um, when people are new, they come to the church, and, they, and then they call me, they call me Pastor Jim. Um, although some people call me Father Jim, then I know they're from out of town. Because the people who live around here call me Fada Jim. <laughs> but, but people call me Pastor Jim until they're no longer impressed with me, and then I just become Jim. And, um, you know, my attempts to be called uh, my lordship at home have failed with Pam. And uh, it's funny, she's away today, and she said, I'm going to listen to the message on the car ride home. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to get you, babe. <laughs> So, um, but, but my failure at being called certain things has failed at the church, too. Um, I tried to get many of you to call me your eminence. That has not worked. <laughs> I've asked several to refer to, you, to me as your holiness. That has not worked. Reverend worked for some of you. You're like, oh, Reverend Jim, like from Taxi. Um, that, that worked for some of you. If you're young, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Watch some of the things on YouTube, and you're like, yeah, he does kind of remind me of Pastor Jim. Um, but older people, I've noticed, um, in fact, one walked up to me after the last service, out of respect, still call me Pastor Jim. And that's fine. That's fine. I, people say to me, what do you want to be called? And I'm like, you call me whatever you want to call me. But I usually, you know, I go, Jim's been my name my whole life, or James, actually, but don't call me that. Only my mother calls me that. But, but so the older people usually stick with Pastor Jim. And there's a certain thing about that that it does to me. I, I'm just, just telling you, just thinking out loud. You know, when people call me Pastor Jim, it reminds me that I'm a shepherd, that I'm to be a shepherd. When, when people call me Pastor Jim, it reminds me um, that I am to be a servant of God and his people. Uh, while, while I tell most people, why don't you just call me Jim, I, I do say this. When you're talking about me or the other pastors, I would throw the term pastor in front of our name. And when I talk to you about the other pastors, I generally refer to them as pastor so-and-so unless I know you're very, very close with them. Why? Uh, out of respect for the office. You say, well, why, why out of respect for the office? Because biblical church leadership offices were in, in, instituted by Jesus. But the flip side of that is that yearning for rank or striving for rank or demanding rank or recognition was not instituted by Jesus. So Jesus concludes with a new kind of leadership, something we've already heard him say earlier in Matthew's Gospel, verse 11, but he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. I mean, the religious leaders, any that might still be there, completely over their head. They're like, what in the world is this guy talking about? So what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that kingdom greatness is found in being a servant not in a title. And I'm just going to say from a personal standpoint, a personal opinion, that I'm more impressed with people who lead without a title than people who lead with a title. I'm more impressed with people who just come in, they roll up their sleeves, they get to work, and, and, and eventually we just say, well, we're going to give you this title because you're doing it anyway, man, but just don't let the title corrupt you because a lot of times the title will corrupt you. And he says, verse 12, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself. Notice, we are to humble ourselves. And a lot of people are like, well, I'm going to go humble that guy. You know, or, 
Now, we humble ourselves. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Once again, Jesus flips the world upside down, or we might say right side up. The people the world exalts will be humbled by God, and Jesus' servants will be exalted by God. Now, I want to be very clear on something, particularly for you young people. Uh, this does not eliminate ambition. Jesus is not just saying, oh, just be lazy. Not at all. It actually redefines ambition. It doesn't eliminate ambition. It redefines ambition from selfish ambition to godly ambition, to what the church and the world surely needs. This is not people-pleasing to be noticed. This is Jesus-style humility, a willing service with kingdom purposes in mind. Humility is one of the most widely taught concepts in the New Testament because the scripture teaches without a humble trust in Jesus, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The prophet Isaiah wrote these words, Isaiah 66, 2, for all these things my hand has made, God talking, and all these things exist, says the Lord, but on this one I will look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. So just for a second, as we begin to land the plane here, look at Jesus Christ being crucified on the cross. Imagine Jesus Christ being crucified on your cross, on the cross. And James 4.10 says this, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Now, the idea of being lifted up sounds great, doesn't it? But the first part says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. Jesus said, if you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. James says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. How do you do it? We could probably spend the rest of the day on that. Do any of you have any plans or have to go to work tomorrow or anything like that? We could, but I want to narrow it down to two things that are not easy and are a struggle for me, quite honestly, especially the first one. One is, to hum- how do you humble yourself? Consistently thank God for his goodness. Consistently thank God for his goodness. And I think if you do that, that will actually keep you in a good place. Everything won't seem so out of whack. And there's a lot to be you know, worried about these days, for sure. It's been that way in every, every generation. There's always, there's always problems. But, but try to stay focused and continually thank God for his goodness. And I would say do it verbally. You can get away with it a lot better now. Back in the day, they just thought we were insane, but now they just think we're on our cell phone. <laughs> and the second one is regular repentance and confession. Really talking to God about your sin. In other words, critiquing yourself to God. <laughs> Telling God what he already knows, what you know, what's, what's wrong with you, and asking him for grace and mercy and forgiveness. And I found those two things are things that work to, to keep me in a, in a better place, in a, in a place of humility. The cross of Christ was the greatest act of humility and service that the world has ever seen. But as you're still looking at the cross, it also shows us how bad our sin problem really is. 
Again, it's not a comparative thing. It's a sin against God and how we don't measure up to God's ways. And the, way, the only way to fix it was to send Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. Interesting, the religious leaders bound up the people with their rules and regulations. And Jesus Christ was bound and taken away as a prisoner. The religious leaders had the phylacteries that they wore on their head. And Jesus was given a crown of thorns to wear on his head. And they tied those phylacteries also to those boxes to their hands. But Jesus Christ, his hands were nailed to a cross. And while they had those prayer shawls that they would attach all kinds of fringes to look all spiritual, they took his shirt off. And he didn't get a prayer shawl. He got a whip. And his back was scourged. And he was beaten almost to the point where nobody could even recognize him or to that point. Standing at the foot of the cross puts us in the presence and holiness of God himself. So as you sit there and look, just think for a second, what do you see? We said that the religious leaders were putting heavy burdens on people, that they couldn't stand under the pressure of them. But as you look at the cross, do you see God putting the burden of your sin on Jesus? Are you so tired that you can't carry the burden of your sin anymore? Jesus invites you today, come to him. You're heavy laden. He'll give you rest. He says, give me your burden. Let me carry that for you. And as you look at the cross and you see all of that going on, do you really think your good works are worth a lick? Do you really think you're such a good person? Are you still that arrogant? Do you still lack that much humility that you can see what he goes through for you and for me just to have, so we could have the forgiveness of sins? In this moment, right now, if you never have, and you look at the cross, and you see Jesus in that way, and you feel small, in the presence of a large God, and you feel virtually anything you do for heaven is meaningless, take this moment right now and put your trust in Jesus because you are there. You are there. You're at the place to be a new creation. You're at the place to have your sins forgiven. And you may never, ever feel this way again. Take the opportunity Come up front, pray with people after the service. Or if some other thing is burdening you and you're like, I can't get out from under this thing. I need help. I need God. I need something. Come up front and pray with other people. Jesus said this, Matthew 20, 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This world needed a new kind of leader. And we got him. They knew him back then as Jesus of Nazareth. We know him as Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ. Will you trust him? Will you follow him? Well, let's stand and pray.